0: Hey everybody! Welcome to Deal Talk. This is episode number three. I'm with my co-hosts, Bill and Mills. Deal Talk is a weekly show that we do as a podcast between the three of us, and we look at small business M&A from a deal perspective. So we look at deals that we find, uh, and those are either in the forms of teasers or sims. Uh, sometimes anonymized. Sometimes we talk about them. Are able to talk about the specific companies, and we just think about how to think about the companies. And these are all businesses that are marketing themselves or trying to sell. So uh, very excited to do our third episode. And uh, Bill, you have our first one.
1: Yeah. So this is a sim that I saw a number of years ago. And for context, for listeners, our firm, Elements Brands, we acquire direct consumer CPG brands. So typically, my deals are in that vein. This is one of those. It was a direct consumer skincare and hair care brand, a little on the smaller side, when we saw the sim, they were doing about $181,000 of revenue and cash flow about $77,000. The business was six years old at the time and had been flat, flat, flat. So they had done for the past three years uh, almost exactly that same $77,000 in profit. They carried very little inventory, about $14,000 of inventory or about $19,000 of inventory on average. And it was just run by the two founders or I guess the founder and her husband, out of their house on the West Coast. They had kind of one contract manufacturer or two contract manufacturers. And it was pretty much as simple as the products were shipped to their house in five-gallon buckets. And then they bought bottles and labels. And then when you ordered one, they filled the bottle with a pump, slapped the label on it, capped it, and mailed it to you. So it was fairly manual, uh, small business. Uh, But decent margins, you know, as I said, $77,000 in profit on 181 of sales uh, and very stable. I have been stable for six years uh, since founding. The founder, uh, she has started it because she was an esthetician. uh, And the angle of this brand was, you know, kind of before it was cool, was really, you know, whole plants, no preservatives. Uh, no chemicals, kind of very high end higher price points. I mean we're talking twenty five thirty dollars for a bottle of shampoo, but they did almost all those sales direct consumer on their website uh, with a small amount on amazon, but didn't really didn't really focus on the Amazon channel and no wholesale at all so hey uh, bill when when did you guys transact on this? so this would would have been Yep. So you're so you're 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 showing my hand, which is that this is actually a business that we bought. Uh I wanted to bring this one to the show because the past couple of weeks I feel like we've been a little negative on the brands we reviewed. So this is a business that we purchased in 2013. Okay. For Elements brands. So we have since sold it. We sold it earlier this year just because it was a little uh small for us. Our our focus has moved up market to brands with about, you know, between two and ten million in sales. Um, but we bought this one at about one hundred eighty-one thousand dollars in sales and sold it at about six hundred thousand dollars in sales, roughly, uh, after about five years of ownership, uh, or I guess nearly seven years of ownership. And during that time, it was a great cash flow asset for us. It really this was the first acquisition we did actually, and it really helped me to build the firm uh, on the cash flow that this brand generated at close, but also the, the we were able to grow it. Uh, we were able to about triple it during the time we. Um so I know a lot about this brand but I know Michael and Mills you guys don't. I'd be interested in your takes kind of first before I get too far into it.
2: Well I was just going to say Bill it looks like it's you know predominantly female right in terms of the consumer. It says like maybe 90 95% and they've got what looks like incredible you know return customer 60% you know sales from return customers and the average ticket price seems incredibly high over $70 which from what you're saying, it doesn't seem like they have a ton of different SKUs, but it's, is it just a higher price point, you know, shampoo or product for the most? Yes.
1: Part? Just, just a premium product. I mean, they're essentially growing herbs and squeezing them into the bottle, you okay. know, very fresh, very just higher price points. So that $73 average ticket price that would represent kind of two to three items.
2: Okay. Gotcha. And what about like the differentiation of the product itself? Is it something that's just very hard to replicate then, you know, because I'm thinking there's not anything proprietary about kind of getting the raw ingredients and squeezing it into a bottle. Is it just that it's so manually intensive that other people are going, oh, I don't want to mess with that?
1: Uh, honestly, no, there is very little. And this, despite what lots of people who own brands will tell you, most CPG brands have almost no IP outside of the brand itself, hmm. almost any product in any formula can be very easily replicated by a contract manufacturer almost exactly, exactly or exactly to the point where a consumer can never tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so most brands, most companies here, the value of the differentiation is in their positioning and their brand story. There's very little typically proprietary IP in most CPG deals. This seems like it came about at a time, I mean, they started in 2006,
0: you came in, 2013. It, it seems like they did a great job of being early to this kind of natural, you know, natural kind of approach to to skincare and whatnot. Yes, and then it seemingly has gotten very, very crowded since then. and yes. so I'm interested in your perspective on that as
1: you know as you're considering your investment thesis in this business. Yes, yeah, so that was partially our investment thesis in the business, with that this was a growing category. What's interesting is kind of the growing category thesis, you know, oh yeah, I'd love to invest in businesses with growing categories. Something that we got wrong uh, a couple times early in our history is thinking that, oh, when a category is really explosive, if you're early to it, that's a good thing. But there's a double-edged sword to that because that means that all of the established players come piling into your market at full speed, lower price points, huge marketing budgets, Uh, And things get very competitive very fast, which not only erodes your margins but erodes your reach uh, and your ability to stand out. So that was partially what happened to us with this brand, Um, and we did we did very well on it. I mean, we were able to triple it and reap a lot of cash flow, and we sold it for a higher multiple than we bought it for. You know, by all Excel metrics, this was a smash of an investment. But we only got it to six hundred thousand in sales, and that was because you know, kind of the whole. Everybody came into this market uh, and it became much harder to differentiate. So if you are buying a business that is in a market that you think is going to explode, you should have a pretty clear thesis, which we really didn't when, when we bought this brand. Uh, you should have a really clear thesis on how you will continue to differentiate if everyone comes into your market. And that, and that I think, is why that we were not uh, able to make this business bigger, even bigger than we made it. It is interesting. It
0: does look like... The biggest part of the asset you actually bought was their place in Google, right? And I, I love in this sim, there's uh, page number 11, which by the way, the sim is so old, they're still having it on 8.5 by 11 pieces of paper, right? That's the ratio. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like a slide deck. But all of these different organic keywords that you know, they're one, two, or three are mostly ones for them, like organic hair products, organic eye cream, and stuff like that. So yep. that seemed like a big...
1: A big asset at the time? Or am I overvaluing that? Uh, That seemed like an important asset. um, But even more so than that was the repeat customer rate and the email Mm -hmm. list. So they had, as Mills mentioned earlier, 60% repeat customers. So more than half their sales came from somebody who had bought before. And that was incredibly attractive to me because typically, you know, with these consumable products, you will pay a lot to acquire somebody up front. And then you really make your money on sale two, three, four, five, uh, if you can get them to stick around. So I was really impressed and thought it spoke to the strength of the brand that they were able to retain people. And I will say, this is something I was very right about. That number remained the same uh, for the entire duration of our ownership, in fact. Uh, This is a brand that once people found it, they just absolutely loved it. Uh, The thing that we struggled to grow in this brand is that the high price points, kind of 30 bucks for a bottle of shampoo, you know, very, and with the positioning of like very organic, you know, as I kind of say, facetiously, like they squeeze the herbs right in the bottle. You know, a lot of people don't care that it's that organic, like 10 out of 10. A lot of people will buy eight out of 10 organic at half the price. Uh, And that was something that we struggled to articulate to the customer, which is why we only made it three times bigger. Interestingly enough, it's good that they had that high
0: repeat level because I go look on Google now for these search terms where they were first and they're not even
1: in the top five pages after you get past the ads. Yes, like I said, huge amount of competition piled into this space. Yeah, that's absurd. Bill,
2: did you guys keep the branding as is? You know, it it looks like very kind of homespun, you know, branding. And granted, this is also a little bit dated, you know, when you guys acquired it and when the sim was made. But did you guys keep the same name? Did you update the branding, update the website, those kind of things?
1: So we kept the name because you know when you buy a CPG brand, the name is essentially all you're buying. As I because I as I mentioned before, very little IP beyond the brand. So we kept the name. And then what we did is you're right, it's very it looks kind of very homemade, the branding in this sim. And so what we did is we surveyed the customers. We said we're gonna update this brand. We surveyed the customers. We said, what is it? that you associate with this brand. We said, is it the script font of the logo? Is it the blue bottles it comes in? Is it the gold labels on the blue bottles? Is it certain phrases or, or, you know, taglines? And overwhelmingly, the thing that they came back with was we identify the blue glass bottles with this brand. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we just changed everything else and kept the blue bottles. Um, So we iterated the labels, the logo, all of that stuff to kind of freshen it and, but kept the blue bottles. So it felt continuous to people. And that, I think it still, you know, kind of seems fresh today.
2: Good on you guys for checking that and making sure cause you may have, you know, you could have haphazardly gone in there and been like, Oh, these blue bottles look so old, you know, let's, let's put a, let's put a, you know, a cool packaging together. And then all of a sudden customers are like, Oh my, you know, you could be the same stuff in the, in a different container. And all of a sudden your customers think that all the value has gone. Yep, it, because as I said, the whole
1: value is the brand, and if you lose the trust and the association in the consumer's mind between this visual look and what's in the bottle, you're basically starting over.
2: Can you tell us, Bill? I guess about about who the uh, who the buyer for you was, and and what made you go about thinking about, hey, it's it's time for us to exit size being a factor. But I'm curious about kind of the next the next phase, right, in terms of somebody else taking it over, and what was that process like?
1: Yeah. So we decided to sell this brand kind of late 2019. And it was kind of, it was purely strategic for us based on size, because as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we have moved up market a bit. And $600,000 in sales was easily the smallest brand in our portfolio. What we realized is it's about the same amount of effort to run a larger brand as it is a smaller brand. So, you know, if you're going to send an email and it goes to a million people or a hundred thousand people, it's pretty much the same amount of effort to press send. Uh, And that scale kind of translates across a lot of digital marketing. So we, on purpose, actually shed our three smallest brands over the course of the last year. So we went to a business broker, uh, one that we like that sells e-commerce businesses, and they helped us kind of put together prospectus, reached out to their network, and we ultimately sold it to kind of ironically, full circle, a guy and his wife, uh, just like who I bought it from, who are going to take the brand you know, from here and, and hopefully grow it and do very well with it.
2: What did you do, Bill, in terms of the just day-to-day operations? If you had this husband and wife, what was replacing their role like you know, post-close for you?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. So as I mentioned, they were doing it at home and it's just the two of them and they were By hand, putting stickers on bottles and pump fill, pumping them by hand, you know, into into jars and things like that. So when I bought it, I actually did that for about three to six months in my basement in Colorado where I was living at the time. Uh, Which is important, I think, when you buy a business to actually get into it and see how it's done. Uh, So I would, you know, wake up, I look at the orders, I manufacture the products to fill the day's orders, and you know, I was I worked in my basement for a couple months, but uh, in parallel. We ultimately ended up finding a third-party logistics facility who was willing to do kind of some of this hands-on kidding, uh, and so I ultimately outsourced it to this 3PL. I, you know, I flew out there, I trained their staff on how to do it uh, because it wasn't rocket science. You just had to kind of have the bill of materials for every item, you know, know how much you know, fill it by weight, and roll on. So that's how we ultimately did it. And then I was able to focus on just the marketing and growing the brand. As I mentioned, this was the very first brand that Elements Brands bought uh, back in 2013. So at the time, I was doing nearly everything. So kind of after I was able to get the operations outsourced, that's when I could focus on growing the brand. But it was critical to have the operations on lock before we could grow it. Super
0: interesting. So what, you know, what, as you think back on, you looking at this deal before you did it, what what surprised you that you didn't know at the at the sim time that you would, you know, go back and tell, you know, young Bill, hey, look out for this. It's gonna bite you in the butt?
1: Uh just the level of expertise that was required in this market because mm-hmm. as I mentioned, this was a very, very high end, very enthusiast kind of skincare and hair care market. And I, you know, at the time was not a skincare and hair care enthusiast, uh, but I figured, oh, you know, it's just a widget, you know, I can sell it. But it was actually a much longer learning curve than I expected to really get in the head of the, in the, head of the customer and, and to understand why they were buying our product. And you can't, until you understand that, you can't go find more customers that are like the customers you already have. And actually, you know what, this is a great kind of anecdote that'll make you chuckle, but really illustrates the point. Uh, when we bought the brand... They were making. They made a shaving cream, and when we were redoing all of the packaging, we also rewrote all of the blurbs. You know, kind of the description of the product on the back of the bottle and on the website. Uh, I took a crack at it, uh, and I said, you know, great for you know daily shave. You know, leave your your face feeling soft. You know, et cetera. And I had my mom review all of them. You know, because she was like squarely in the target demo. So I said, Mom, please read these. See if they make sense to you. And she goes. She goes, honey, this product is for shaving your legs, not your face. Uh, and I had totally missed it because most of the demo of the, of the brand was, you know, middle aged women uh, who are shaving their legs, not their faces. Like there were very few male customers, but because I was not yet empathizing with the demographic, I had totally whiffed on that. So that kind of illustrates, you know, how long it can take to get up the curve. <laughs> that, I mean, is, that is so awesome. All right.
0: Great job. Mills, let's go on to deal number two. You have that one.
2: Yeah, that's good. Bill, thanks for sharing. This is a sim on a residential solar company. So they do sales and installation of solar panels that go on people's, the roofs of their home. Uh, They're based in the Western United States. 2019 revenue was around $50 million. 2019 EBITDA around $11 million. And they're projecting 2020 would be 65 million in revenue and about 14 million in EBITDA. Their growth historically has been incredibly uh, rapid. In 2015, they were doing around five or 10 million in revenue, so uh, historical growth has been pretty pretty significant. Uh, In terms of forward-looking growth, they kind of tell this story about look, we can expand into new markets. They've really focused on one geography. And they anticipate that they'll get you know a fair amount of scale and benefit from leveraging the processes they already have in place. Their customer type is is all residential. There doesn't seem like they're doing any commercial or industrial or municipal. And uh, it's majority owned by the one of the founders uh, who wants to exit. but it looks like there's maybe a co-founder who would stay involved and then someone else on the cap table who owns a very nominal amount of equity. They've got uh, over a hundred full-time employees, but then they interestingly have uh, an army—several hundred folks who are in direct sales positions. I don't know if you've ever been spammed by somebody selling, um, you know, uh, hey, free, you know, solar console for your roof. But I think this—this this is those folks, you know, in this specific geography. It's an interesting company, you know. At face value, you look at this and you go, "Wow, this is a this is a huge amount of revenue." For what they do, it's a pretty significant EBITDA margin, over twenty percent EBITDA margin. But there are a surprising number of these in the market. Is, has been my observation over the last several years, and I, I think it's a little bit of you know an arms race to see who can kind of get the most market share by whatever time interval. And so there you look at a company like this and you think, wow, this is pretty differentiated. There are dozens of these. I mean, dozens and dozens. So it's it's hard to parse that out just by looking at this one sim. But when I kind of zoom back out, this is a fairly crowded space. The way that this actual company works is a little bit, it seems very kind of simple at face value. Look, they call you, we'll sell you solar panels, we'll install them on your home. And you know, it's gonna lower your electricity bill. It's actually much more complicated than that because most of these companies, they actually you don't pay anything to get the solar panels. It's annuitized by this company in the in the sense that they usually finance it for you. And it's all driven by this mechanism called a power purchase agreement, a PPA. And so. This company basically sells you, you know, for very little or almost nothing. Sometimes they sell you the solar panels, they install them on your house, and then they take possession of these PPAs and they sell them to a syndicator. The people who end up holding these PPAs get a pretty significant tax credit. And it's, this is one of those risks where a flag goes up in my mind, but it's incredibly regulatory sensitive. The solar tax credit program could you know, theoretically go away overnight. It's been phasing down from about a 30% tax credit to 26%. Soon it's going to be a 22% credit. But all that to say, that all, all that benefit flows to the person who ends up holding the power purchase agreements. It's a fairly capital intensive business, uh, which I've seen from this company and a number of others. Because they're basically coming to you and saying, "Hey, look, we'll finance these things for you." So you know it's about fifty percent gross margin. The actual collection of revenue and cash flow when you get down to it in some of these companies, you know, they could have very, very big EBITDA numbers, but the actual free cash flow on the statement of cash flows uh, sometimes you know is is just infinitesimally small. One thing to note on this is that especially with these solar installation companies, the EBITDA adjustments are sometimes just astronomical. So, so, for example, on this one, about 50% of the EBITDA is in the form of adjusted EBITDA, which you got to parse through it, but at face value is a little bit of a concern. Some of them are okay. Some of these things are like, hey, look, the, the owner got a free solar installation on his house. Okay. That, that, that would probably be a benefit that flows to me as the owner of this company. Uh, that, those are real dollars. Uh, like for example, if you see somebody who's paying four hundred thousand dollars a year to upkeep their yacht, if you own the business, that's real. That's real cash that you're going to collect. Some of the others are a little bit more suspect, and and I would say are kind of you know pie in the sky things like when we stop sourcing products from a certain country, here's going to be the increase in our margin. If that's the case, this is me being the skeptic. Then why haven't you done this already, right? Um, or Hey, look, we've got this massive. In in this case, it's about a two million dollar a year discretionary bonus to employees, and they're saying, "Look, you can adjust this whole thing back." And that's just imagine that conversation with your key employees. Hey, congratulations on <laughs> the new owner. We're really thrilled, you know, to be partnering with you. And by the way, you've been grossly overpaid, and we're going to bring you back down to market rates. That's not an adjustment that you could stomach. So. That's the high-level overview. Uh, you, you guys feel free to chime in or tell me what you like or don't like.
0: Yeah, this does feel like one. You know, you, you kind of think about companies of how much of their environment and ability to succeed is in their control. It seems like a lot of it is out of their control, right? You have you have the the supplier side. You have you know the uh, the other thing I think about here is the PPAs and the appetite for people to to buy those as uh, syndicators. How do you think about that kind of aspect of it mills or do i am i thinking about that these guys actually have more control over their destiny than it seems like at first glance
2: well no i mean to me it does feel like they're in a fragile position now they 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 mention you know they reference that they've that there are many people who can buy these ppas and they work with some of the largest ones and you know one of them is a publicly traded entity i mean they're not you know it's not like they're going door to door saying hey do you want to buy solar credits but you're right i mean to me in terms of where you sit in the value chain and, and how, that, how those dynamics can change, I think companies like this can get squeezed mm-hmm. pretty easily, right? I mean, if all of a sudden tax credits change, if all of a sudden syndicators decide they want to extract more value from you, if a lot of new entrants come into your market and all of a sudden your margins on revenue are squeezed... You might be getting nibbled to death, you know, on the sale of these power purchase agreements. All of a sudden, your twenty percent EBITDA could, you know, theoretically get get very, very low, you know, just in order for you to remain competitive. And this is, I mean, fifty million dollars of solar, you know, panels is that's a that's a lot, right? I mean, you're talking about a pretty significantly sized operation, but this doesn't seem like something
1: that has a compounding advantage. The larger it gets. No, I agree, Mills. And the On the plus side, I think there is a certain type of buyer for whom this might make sense because as you kind of alluded to, this business model is not unique. You know, as we've kind of all been, I think, probably spanned by people wanting to put solar panels on our house and and do a PPA, et cetera. But if you are a sales executive or if you maybe already own a business, this would be a great add-on if you're already in this business, if you felt like your edge was in scaling and sales- and you wanted to buy a business where the business model had kind of already been figured out, right? There's lots of competitors. This business model is defined, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. But if you can sell and you can scale a sales org, you might be able to do well with this. Now, of course, as you guys have alluded to, you're rolling the dice on all the regulatory risk in the meantime, but so is the rest of your industry. And if that's a risk you can get comfortable with, but you think that you're just a sales animal and you can build a sales org you know, this might be interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think this business also is, they're a little bit of a victim of their own success. 11 million in EBITDA is, it puts it puts you into this kind of pool where the, the buyer, just the pool of buyers is so small on an $11 million EBITDA business. It's in essence, got to be a family office or got to be an established private equity firm and I think a private equity firm would pick this thing apart. I mean, to me, a couple other red flags is you've got typos in the sim. You know, it's an incredibly redundant and repetitive sim. If you if you kind of go through these different sections, they're basically saying the same thing over and over over again. In some cases, that can be a huge plus, right? Because people don't spend time on it and they kind of pass it by. But at 11 million in EBITDA, this is just. This would be way too big for an individual, right? Or even a group of individuals to pull together. So I hear you on that, but I also think that they've been a victim of their own success. Yep,
1: fair enough.
0: One thing that really stands out looking at the sim, and I think we talked about this last week, the sims and the prospectuses will tell you a lot about what kind of culture you're dealing with and where they're strong and where they're weak. And what really stands out here is how much detail and thought is put into the sales and marketing go to market aspect of what they're doing in the sim versus all the other sections like it's like okay here's our playbook like we've got these people in the philippines they do this like under sales and marketing so i do think that that to me shows hey if you were you know wanting to say if you were a nevada based provider of of exactly what these guys do and you wanted to buy somebody who's going to bring a real high velocity sales culture into your company I like that aspect of what they're doing. You could see that making sense for somebody, but I, I totally agree with you. This is a hard new business to get into if you don't know, don't know much about it. One small
2: little detail that's interesting to note, this company, they ended up converting to a C-corp, which <laughs> is usually a little bit of a red flag when you're dealing with a C-corp. In this case, my hunch is, and I, and I haven't spoken to anybody at the company, but my guess is, is that they switched to a C-corp so they could get qualified small business stock which is a huge uh, federal tax incentive. And the way that it works is you have to be a C-Corp to receive this tax credit. But if you hold the asset for five years, and there's a lot of ifs, so this is not you know, investment advice or tax advice, but if you hold the, the C-Corp stock for five years, you don't pay any capital gains. And so my guess is, is that these guys made that, they made that shift and, and just grew this thing like crazy right, in the five-year window, the timing kind of lines up with when they were founded. And then, I mean, good on them, right? I mean, kudos to them. It just creates a little bit of a hurdle for a buyer to think about inheriting the C-Corp and ways to work around that. But it's very rare that you see a company, because they kind of have a timeline of their history, it's rare that you see a company start as an LLC and then switch to becoming an S-Corp, convert, I mean, sorry, convert to a C-Corp. And that to me is probably the tell, you know, that, that, that they're trying to capture that tax credit.
0: Yeah. One thing I do like here is how, at least they claim, the, the majority owner spends not that much time on the business. I think they claim 10 to 15 hours a week, which for a company this size growing this quickly is at least they're claiming they've built a pretty good management team and a good model uh, around all of that. So, and, and it looks like they're, paying these people that he does have on the management team, the president and folks like that. It looks like he's, he's paying them in a, you know, in a a good market rate to, to be able to attract some good talent. So initial impression is, oh, this is probably a pretty good team and very, a very sales driven organization, which is, which is good for an owner that doesn't necessarily want to buy themselves a job. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Cool. Anything else from you on this one, Bill? Nope. And that covers it. Yeah. Look, Hey, congratulations. We found two deals today that we didn't totally hate. Yeah, <laughs> Yay us. Uh, hey, look, from a time perspective, I do not think we have time to do a third one today. So I would propose we wrap it up here. You know, we went for quality over quantity today, which turned out fantastic.
1: Yep, sounds good. We'll leave it at two and uh, wait for the next episode to dive into some more. All right, guys, catch you next week.